Between lightning and thunder, three seconds the gap. A warm candle glow keeps this wood room from black. My cat, she sleeps on an old clippy mat, purring out echoes of faint pitter pat. Hello and welcome to the Perennial Porridge Podcast, Episode Three. I'm your presenter, Roger Meacham. In these podcasts. You'll be listening to work both from those native to Scotland and those who, like myself, have come to live here. Wherever you are in the world, you may hear something that speaks to you. Not only because Scotland has made connections with every corner of the planet, but because the contributors are from every corner of the planet. I'm going to begin this podcast, the one that might make you rich. By fulfilling a promise I made in podcast two, I'm going to tell you about Scottish oatcakes. No, not the recipe, but the history, as I see it. In case you've never come across Scottish oatcakes, they're not cakes. They're crumbly, savoury biscuits made out of oatmeal, and just about any other ingredient you fancy. But in my opinion, they're not Scottish either. And here, I must take you to the place of my birth, a set of small towns, the six towns, set in the Midlands of England. The design of the Spitfire came from the six towns, as did the captain of the Titanic. In the fifties, they were known for their coal and steel industries, and their world-famous pottery, and their oat cakes. What you ask? Crumbly biscuits? No. The six towns of cakes, called Staffordshire of cakes, because the six towns are in Staffordshire, are oatmeal and flour pancakes. You eat them warm with butter spread on them, or grated cheese, or bits of bacon, or just about anything you like, and they're delicious. Imagine my horror on arriving in Scotland all those years ago and finding that real oat cakes were not available. I almost turned back. All right, I grant you, Scotland has wonderful wilderness, more islands than you can count, a beautiful capital, exciting music, three languages, whiskey, historical links to Europe, a remarkable record of invention, and oh, I could go on, but sorry, Scotland, you failed the oat cake test. Why does Scotland have dry biscuits when they could have soft, warm oat cakes? Here's my best guess: Many centuries ago, someone from one of the six towns came to live in Scotland and found that, despite the wilderness, whisky, and wealth of invention, they missed the six towns oat cakes. The visitor told everyone who had listened about the delicious feast they were missing. This whetted the Scots' appetite to taste. The wonderful food, and so, oat cakes were sent for by first-class mail. In those days, first-class mail travelled at around five or six miles a day. When those tasty soft oat cakes arrived, they were hard, dry biscuits. But the Scots, being generous folk, accepted them and added them to the national menu. 
Back to business. There is another feather in Scotland's cap. It is a storytelling nation. Go online to the Scottish Storytelling Centre. There you'll find a wealth of information about storytellers and the storytelling sessions. This podcast that you're about to hear is a story that's never been written down. You won't find it on the podcast page on our website, lemontreewriters.co.uk. Instead, you'll find a recipe for six towns oat cakes. No, if you want to get rich by listening to this podcast, you're just going to have to listen very carefully for the next 10 minutes. Good luck. In Scotland, just south of Edinburgh, is a place of legends, Roslyn Chapel. The book and subsequent film of Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code made it famous. There are persistent rumours that Roslyn Chapel might somehow be connected with the Knights Templar and their treasure. I'm going to tell you. I know this for a fact. Let me tell you why. On Friday the 13th of October, 1307, King Philip IV of France ordered the arrest of the members of perhaps the richest organisation in Europe at that time, the Knights Templar. In the next days and weeks, hundreds of the Knights were arrested. Philip expected to confiscate the Knights' treasure, but it had all disappeared. Gold and silver coins, reckoned to be worth a dozen kings' ransoms, even then. The money would have been carried by a mule or horse and cart, and it would have taken months to transport it out of France. There are tales of it passing into England through Winchelsea, not far from Hastings. It reappears in one of the Dick Whittington tales set in London in the early 1400s, and it's mentioned again in the Robin Hood legends as being close to Nottingham. That was by the early 1440s. Then in Durham, always heading north. There's no proof that Scotland was the destination, but work on Roslyn Chapel was begun in the 1450s, and apart from the fact that the few surviving Knights Templar had strong connections with Rosalind, there's also something very odd about the construction of this chapel. Rosalind Chapel is a mystical place of threes and prime numbers. Let's have a look. Let's step inside. Three pillars stand at the front of the chapel, but there are 13 pillars in total supporting the roof. Thirteen was, if you recall, a significant number for the knights. Each of the thirteen pillars is decorated with blocks of sandstone, and on each block only one of three designs is used. The blocks are only ever orientated in one of three different ways. There are 213 blocks in total, and many people have looked at these blocks and the code-like markings as a clue left by the knights. A clue for what? What else could it be? Treasure. And no one has ever worked it out. Code breakers have tried, of course, 
But as anyone who knows about codes will tell you, some codes are practically unbreakable. And we know from historical documents that the Templar Knights knew about such codes. I approached the problem some years ago from a different perspective. I never expected to break the code. I looked for something else. I looked for the logic behind the construction. Why go to the trouble of writing a code in stone in a building? Because, I thought, the code is the final instruction. The only one really necessary. Everything else can be deduced. The code has 213 pieces, shorter than a tweet. But if all other instructions are lost in time, then what is important, the knights would have decided, must be said briefly. On every visit to that chapel, I thought long and hard about why there were 213 blocks. This chapel screams the number three. Three pillars at the front. Three patterns on blocks that are only ever orientated three ways. I divided 213 by three. 71. A prime number. Was there some significance in this? I often took myself outside and walked around in the graveyard, pondering, as I tried to put myself in the shoes of one of the last of the Templar Knights, keen to hide a treasure that no king or emperor ever matched, but hide it for years, perhaps for centuries, until the world righted itself and the Templar Order returned. Where would you hide such a treasure? In a building? Buildings fail and are torn down. The treasure would be found by a river. Well, rivers change course. In a forest? On a farm? In a land such as Scotland, forests become farmland and farmland becomes forest. The treasure would always be dug up. I asked myself, what there was that never changed, at least never in the course of human centuries, and as I looked out from the grounds of Roslyn, I saw the hills. The hills of Lothian and Fife. King's Seat, Bishop Hill, Hunt Law, Hogs Law, Crib Law and Mikkelsays, Windlestraw, Lammer, Black Mount and Black Hope Scar. Names might have changed over the centuries, of course, but the hills haven't. Hills don't move. Those hills had been there when the Knights Templar convoy was on its journey and later when the chapel was being built. I stood that day outside the chapel, turning slowly, counting. I only counted hills that stood alone or had definite peaks. And I counted 71. But I needed to be digging holes on Scottish hills in clear view of anyone who passed by without letting on what I was really doing or an army of treasure hunters would descend. I had a plan. I was then an elementary school teacher with a background of outdoor education, so for several weekends each year I took pupils on outings, camping, caravanning or hosteling, and we walked the hills of Lothian and Fife, and on each outing there would be a treasure hunt. The treasure hunts weren't blind hit-or-miss affairs. I had already decided 
that the knights would have buried the treasure in a direction from the peak that, like the hill itself, wasn't unchanging. The direction of the rising sun on the longest day of the year. They wouldn't have chosen winter. The ground would be too hard. Nor would they have chosen dusk and the need for torches. But of course, I still needed the distance. The distance from the hill's peak to the treasure site. The information had to be in that code. I had to guess that it would not be too close to the hilltop where the soil was thin or too close to the valley where the soil might be farmed. There had to be another number and a measure. In the end, the answer was obvious. But why should I make this too easy? I'll simply remind you that prime numbers are a part of the Roslyn Chapel story. And there's one prime number that I've mentioned already a number that no Templar knight would ever forget, I guess that it was indeed the figure I sought. Finally, what measure would this number represent? There was only one measure that remained unchanging over centuries, the stride of the average adult man. So now, with my measurements certain and knowing the direction, I simply had to explore 71 different sites. I always prepared the site before I took the children. I would seed the ground I wanted them to explore with coins, pennies, ten pence pieces, twenty pence pieces, the occasional fifty pence piece or a pound. I took care to hide the coins under stones and tussocks. Then I would return with my posse of children. You know, you can take a horse to water but you can't make a drink, and you can take children on a treasure hunt but you can't make them dig. Not unless there's a motive. I told the children about the great train robbery that had taken place not far from whatever hill we were visiting. There are no trains near here, one child would always shout out. This was back in the days when there were. Now, shut up and listen. I told them how the thieves had stolen coins and when they were caught, They'd claimed they'd buried the coins at night on a hillside. They were still in prison, I told the kids. They'd been given ten years for the robbery and twenty more for being rude to the judge. Now, while I was telling this story, the children would have been digging half-heartedly. I'd promised them I'd scream for any treasure found, but getting an eight-year-old to dig was like pushing an elephant uphill. <laughs> Then someone would find a coin and there'd be a shriek. I found ten pence. I'd usually tell them it was mine, that I dropped ten pence last time I was here. And I'd be told I was a fibber, and in any case, it was finders keepers. But there'd be another cry, and another coin would be discovered. Then, as the hunt became eager, several more would be found, mainly pennies, but every now and then a fifty pence piece or a pound the search would go on. Lots of stones got moved, lots of holes dug with trowels and spades. And at the end, I'd wait until the kids were asleep back at the camp before retrieving more of my money myself. I never bothered cleaning the coins. I kept them in an old tin, ready for the next time. And the next. And the next. Because I never did find the treasure. Or so I thought. I retired from teaching and it was a, a couple of years later when I was clearing things out, tidying up, 
that I came across the old tin and gave the coins in it a good clean. Waste not, want not. There is enough in the tin to buy me a bottle of wine. There was also a coin in the tin that I had never planted on those hunts. It looked silver and it looked old. I took it to be valued and discovered how rare and precious this 13th century coin was. French, said the valuer. Never seen one like this though, only heard of them. Knights Templar's own stock. Thought they all got melted down when the French king, what's his name? Philip, I suggested. That's it, Philip. He took them and melted them, didn't he? This one must have escaped. Lucky you. Unlucky me. Which hill was it that I'd had the children dig on and then, collecting the coins by torchlight, had failed to spot the single treasure coin they had unearthed? It's still there. The treasure. Waiting for you listeners. Better get digging. Thank you for listening. Do remember, if you do find the treasure, you must report this to the Scottish Treasure Trove Unit. And when you receive the reward, I hope... I hope you'll remember who gave you the clues. Visit the Lemon Tree Writers website at lemontreewriters.co.uk where you'll find background information and a recipe for Staffordshire oatcakes. If you are living or working in Scotland, or if you have an interest in the kind of writing you are hearing on these podcasts, consider joining the group. Apart from the podcasts, we meet online every fortnight to discuss new work. Our theme opening is from Rain by songwriter Martin Stevenson, sung here by Helen McCookery Book. Our next podcast is in a fortnight, the 18th of June 2020. Be prepared for insightful and hard-hitting language. I'll be meeting Scottish poet and screenplay author Leslie Benzie. Let's put it this way. If you're tired of having to shout at the radio, let Leslie's poetry take over for a while. If any listeners know how we can get her poems broadcast in the Oval Office or at number 10, get in touch. New Zealand's Prime Minister, did you say? Oh, I think they're already popular over there. Goodbye until the 18th of June. My subconscious and I are back on speaking terms. He's sending me colours and beautiful and far, far away are the harsh city folk I'm surrounded by country Surrounded by night as the rain Falls down on the yard Rain, rain.